Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to this latest podcast. And I call this one Hot Topics in Multi-Detector CT, July 2010 edition. And this will be uh, over the next couple weeks. And these are some articles I've read and things hopefully you may have seen over the past couple months in key radiology publications. And I chose this background green because I just got back from China and uh, I was in Shanghai, which is kind of like the Emerald City. So we'll use an emerald background for... Uh, a couple of my word slides. Anyway, let's look at several topics. First topic I want to look at is the liver. And just a few facts. I read a couple articles about cholangiocarcinomas. We are seeing cholangiocarcinomas more commonly these days. We talk about cholangios, which can look just like hepatic masses, like hepatomas, others that are in the common duct. There are a number of risk factors from liver flukes to primary sclerosis and cholangitis. That's something we think about viral infection, so we do see an increase of cholangiocarcinoma now with hepatitis B and C becoming uh, epidemic in proportion. You also can see an increased incidence in Crowley's disease. Patients with environmental exposures like thoratrest, dioxin, or polyvinyl chloride have an increased incidence of cholangiocarcinomas, and there's also an association with heavy alcohol consumption. It's actually the second most common primary tumor of the liver, representing about 10% to 20% of all primary tumors. Uh, highest prevalence in Southeast Asia is usually an adenocarcinoma on biopsy. In most cases, it's hypovascular, though can have a hypervascular rim on arterial phase imaging. At times, it will have a bit more of a hypervascular rim on delayed phase imaging. I mentioned about uh, increased incidence and colidocal cysts is one of the other things that have an increased incidence of cholangiocarcinoma with a lifetime risk of up to 15%. In terms of CT findings, um, the lesion uh, is not as vascular and doesn't have the neovascularity we think about when we talk about epitomas, but it's more vascular than adjacent liver. And on delayed phase imaging, we often speak about cholangios that they have increased enhancement because they have increased uh, fibrous tissue. Uh, and it's this increased enhancement about five minutes post-injection that people typically speak about due to this fibrous stroma. And again, there's three typical appearances, mass forming, looking like hepatoma, periductal, and intraductal type uh, patterns. Okay, so that's something just to consider. Um, and again, I do put that in the differential diagnosis. I think we have a lot of nice cases of that on CTSS as well. Okay, I read another article, a recently good article on hepatic tubers in the pediatric patients. And um, this article made the point that there are many tumors in pediatric patients in the liver. Some also are similar in adults, and some are indeed unique. And by looking at the pattern of disease and also looking at specific imaging findings, we can at times be very specific. When you talk about uh, benign tumors, we talk about some unusual things like infantile hemangioendothelioma, we talk about FNH, we talk about mesenchymal hematomas, nodular regenerative hyperplasia, and hepatocellular adenoma. So let me cover a few of them. Infantile hemangioendothelioma is also known as infantile hepatic hemangioma, which is uh, what many of us remember it as. It's a vascular lesion, and in fact, is the most common benign hepatic tumor of infancy. 90% are diagnosed in the first six months of life, and it's rarely diagnosed after age one. Half the cases are solitary, and half are multifocal. The patients present early because they typically have high output congestive heart failure. 
Uh, you can see Casabag Merritt syndrome of coagulopathy due to intratumoral platelet sequestrations. Patients can also present with hypothyroidism. Also, they can present with pneumoperitoneum uh, due to tumor rupture. So again, those are all possibilities. In terms of the CT findings that are specific, the lesions um, are usually small when they're multifocal. Large lesions can demonstrate central hemorrhage, necrosis, fibrosis, and calcification. And it can also present as diffuse disease with the liver enlarged and replaced by multiple masses. So that's an infantile hemangioendothelioma. Again, the classic thing is patients presenting early in infancy with failure. Mesenchymal hematoma is the second most common mass. Patients, again, are typically younger than two, but uh, uh, never over five. And usually presentation is abdominal distension, often with a large mass being present. The masses can be complex, cystic masses. You may see septations, which in fact enhance, or you may see solid components as well. Uh, in terms of this tumor, uh, again, it's fairly rare, but it's a cystic type mass is the best way to think about it. FNH, we speak a lot about it in adults. It's fairly uncommon in children. When it does occur, it's more common in females. Uh, again, it's often an incidental finding, though it can present with abdominal pain, and the appearance with central scarring and the uh, uh, enhancement being vascular but looking like the IVC are the typical findings we're talking about in adults are also the finding in children. So well-circumscribed, uniform enhancement early, prominent feeding arteries, and becoming isodense with a central scar also becoming isodense. Hepatic adenomas, again, typically older patients, but they have been reported in patients age 10 or so. Again, birth control pills, more common in glycogen storage disease, types 1 and types 3. And again, the issues are intratumoral hemorrhage or liver rupture. Again, in terms of appearances, they may contain fat or calcification, uh, but fairly uncommon in the pediatric age group but I thought I'd mention it just to be complete, and the article did mention it. The article talks also about an unusual condition, nodular regenerative hyperplasia, NRH, regenerating nodules surrounded by atrophic liver in the absence of fibrosis. These nodules can range in size from millimeters to several centimeters. It's often seen in association with underlying diseases like lymphoproliferative disorders, autoimmune disorders, collagen vascular disease, and Bud-Chiari syndrome. It's very uncommon. The CT appearance, typically hypodense lesions which do not enhance, can be single or multiple, and looks very much like metastatic disease. So something very unusual. So those are five or so unusual tumors or usual tumors in the pediatric patient that are considered benign lesions. Malignancies, we talk about hepatoblastoma, we talk about hepatoma, we talk about fibrolamella hepatoma, but that'll be a topic for another day. Now, I mentioned in the pediatric patients that we should at least consider FNH as one of the possibilities, though it's uncommon. So I thought I'd mention FNH. Here's an article actually that's not yet been published, so I'm going to share with you some information. There's an article by Pam Johnson from Hopkins talking about FNH. And uh, in this article, mean FNH attenuation was less than 50% of the aorta attenuation during arterial phase values. And, but it was more common close to the IVC value on arterial phase imaging. Uh, it's very important to recognize uh, this pattern. It makes it very, very important to be able to see that. Um, 
in terms of size, mean diameter of masses was in the range of uh, uh, 46 millimeters. So you can see the lesions are fairly large in the five centimeter range. You can see some of the distribution. You can see the presence of smooth contours, absence of a pseudocapsule, and that homogeneity is indeed very common. Central scars, a little less than half the patient, but again, central scars make it easy. And so this article does make the conclusion, look at the enhancement pattern. Homogeneous enhancement, critical, central scar, common, but only in about half the cases. And again, not as bright as the aorta, but typically parallel to the IVC. So an article you'll see in press. Okay, that's some liver information. What about the pancreas? I've read a number of different articles recently, and so some of the articles made the point uh, looking at pancreatic duct, and so talked about pancreatic duct dilatation and the presence of pancreatic cysts being indicators of development of subsequent pancreatic cancer. Now, this was an article by Tanaka and that group from Japan talking about predicting what patients might get pancreatic cancer. Now, again, it's a very tough article uh, those two findings, a small cyst, we talk about IPMNs and increased incidence of cancer over time, uh, but it's a small increased incidence. And again, duct dilatation over 2.5 millimeters is something you need to look at, but again, it's hard to call that a predictor of cancer. But when you look at uh, those findings, they found that subjects uh, with both of these findings, the five-year cumulative risk of pancreatic cancer was 5%. So it is increased, so something to be aware of. Um, they suggested, in fact, that if patients had these findings, um, that they recommended a careful follow-up of patients. Now, indeed, with cystic pancreatic lesions, we do follow the patients. Yearly is a pretty common thing to do. Again, you want to make certain these lesions are not growing, not developing any nodularity or findings like that. Uh, but again, this is still an area of tremendous interest. And uh, again, uh, he even said uh, small duct dilatation, you should follow it. We'll typically make certain there's no cause for that duct dilatation, but I guess in general we haven't been following it. But again, it's something to indeed think about. And our rules, particularly in this era of hereditary pancreatic cancer, are really changing. And again, it's important to come up with some scheme in your institution how you're going to manage these patients. Now, there also was a couple articles on pancreatitis. Here was one article speaking about some of the uncommon causes of pancreatitis. Now, of course, alcohol abuse, colothiasis are the most common causes of pancreatitis in adults, uh, while the majority in children are idiopathic or secondary to trauma. But they mentioned there are a number of uncommon types of pancreatitis. And this article actually goes through many of these different ones, from autoimmune pancreatitis to groove pancreatitis to pancreatitis and cystic fibrosis to tropical pancreatitis. Now autoimmune pancreatitis is something we've seen a lot of articles about. The key thing is that autoimmune pancreatitis can simulate a cancer. Uh, the classic thing is diffusely enlarged gland with loss of lobular architecture, this sausage shape, and a peripheral rind of hypoattenuation. Non-dilated diffusely narrowed pancreatic duct, uh, are, and then uh, there may be some extra pancreatic autoimmune manifestations as well. Now autoimmune pancreatitis is known by a number of different things. LSP was one of the common things that we used, but autoimmune pancreatitis is typically the term. And it's a type of chronic pancreatitis that is characterized by an autoimmune inflammatory process with lymphoplasmocytic infiltration associated with fibrosis of the pancreas. 
The key findings are absence of a clinical history of prior pancreatitis. So you, you don't have the typical history of alcohol abuse or prior pancreatitis. The key thing is elevated immunoglobulin G4. These patients have dramatic responses to steroid therapy. And I mentioned the point about difficulty distinguishing from pancreatic cancer. We've seen several cases of patients operated on for what's felt to be a pancreatic tumor and it ends up being autoimmune pancreatitis. So some facts. Age range is fairly wide, though most patients are over 50, more common by a factor of two in men compared to women. And you can see the presentation, jaundice, abdominal pain, weight loss, diabetes, are all things that can also overlap with the presentation of pancreatic cancer. Extra pancreatic processes, including sclerosis and cholangitis, um, can occur, inflammatory bowel disease, sojourn syndrome, renal involvement, retroperitoneal fibrosis, again, are all things that can be secondary findings in these patients. As I mentioned, the difficulty comparing uh, or confusing with pancreatic cancer, the history of weight loss, lack of pancreatitis history, CA199 may be elevated, and the CT appearance can be mass-like and look identical to pancreatic cancer, particularly when it's focal. When autoimmune pancreatitis is more extensive, involves the entire gland, it's typically not an issue. CT findings, the classic featureless gland, diffuse glandular enlargement with loss of the typical lobular texture. You may see homogeneously iso-hypoattenuating parenchyma with a non-dilated diffusely narrowed pancreatic duct. And one finding that I do find helpful is this halo around the gland. And that halo really should make you think about the possibility of autoimmune pancreatitis. So that's one of the unusual pancreatitis. Another one is groove pancreatitis which typically, you can, again, can confuse us with is cancer. You see soft tissue within the pancreatic duodenal groove with or without delayed enhancement. You may see small cystic lesions along the medial duodenal wall. So it indeed can be uh, a definite possibility. Uh, MRI can be very helpful in part because it can see many of these smaller cysts in this regard. So just something to indeed think about. Um, lots of articles have been written recently about looking at small pancreatic cysts, and I won't go through them in any detail. Here was one article comparing CT and MRI uh, with MR cholangiopancreatography and characterizing small pancreatic cysts. Made the point that MDCT and MRI have a high accuracy in classifying cysts into mucinous and non-mucinous categories and perform similarly in estimating histologic aggressiveness um, dedicated thin section dual phase technique improves the diagnostic performance of MDCT for assessing cyst morphology and should be the preferred approach for evaluating small cysts with CT, although MRI with MRCP can be useful in more difficult cases. So again, the thought about using both of these techniques, again, can indeed be very helpful. So again, something just to uh, be aware of. Now, there was a couple other articles, and I'll just make one point since uh, I saw this article. We do a lot of HHT, hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia patients at Hopkins, and we talk about pulmonary AV malformations as the main finding. But we've also seen a number of cases with uh, hepatic AV malformations, but you also can see pancreatic involvement up to one-third of cases. Pancreatic AVMs are only diagnosed in arterial phase imaging. What's interesting about them is they can simulate a vascular tumor. Vascular lesions of the pancreas are not all that common. We talk about neuroendocrine tumors. We talk about acinar tumors occasionally. 
hemorrhagic pancreatitis, pseudoaneurysms around the vessels of the pancreas, peripancreatic varices, and particularly by the tail and accessory spleen, all can be vascular lesions. So it's something indeed to think about. Uh, again, very uncommon unless the patient is HHT. Um, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's stop here and we'll come back a little bit and discuss uh, other areas, including the small bowel. And with that, let's take a break.